Hey friends, this is the Finding Mikey podcast, our family's quest to prepare our son Mikey for life. I'm Mike, and from time to time I'll be joined by my wife Heather or other family members and others for interviews and conversations. Now while I may mention our son, you have a Mikey of your own, and together we're on a journey to learn as much as we can so that we can understand how to best communicate and guide our kiddos into independent adulthood. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody, I wanted to take a moment and just fill you in a little bit of the background of the person who I am interviewing today. And Collins Foster is her name. She's a, a friend of a coworker of mine. And it was just, I talk a little bit about how I became aware of her in the interview. So hang tight for that. But she has almost 20 years of experience with higher ed um, in Georgia. She's worked with both the technical college system and the university system of Georgia. Although her background is in marketing and alumni relations, uh, in the past few years, she has realized her true passion, and that is advocating with and for a group of non-speaking autistic students in the Atlanta metro area who really, really want to graduate college with a degree. She's working toward her master's degree right now for social work, and when she gets her license, she plans to transition into the disability services arena within higher ed you know, continuing to work with students like this here as well, I presume. Now, she lives outside of Atlanta. Uh, She has a husband named Chris, who I know, and they have an eight-year-old daughter named Emerson. So buckle up, put the earbuds in real tight. This is a long episode compared to some of the other ones there, but I'm sure you're going to like it. So without anything else, here's my interview with Collins Foster. Thank you for taking your time on a Saturday. I understand you had kids over last night and been kind of busy. So I appreciate you taking the time uh, on a weekend to chat with me. No problem. I could talk about this autistic student group all day long. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) It's good. It seems, you know, if uh, I, I sort of feel silly now when I talk to other people, when you eventually start talking about your own kids or what your, you know, your passions are and things like that, where I don't know if you remember my, my grandmother and grandfather used to have their billfold and they would have like, you know, a whole bunch of pictures of the grandkids and nobody ever wanted to see that. Well, I've turned into my grandparents with my iPhone though. So <laughs> same thing yeah. kind of happens there. But like you, I obviously we wouldn't have started a podcast if we couldn't have just talked about, you know, the the impact of autism in, in our family, our community and, you know, the blessings that they actually are and who they are kind of hidden behind this. You know, I don't know the right way to say it, but just hidden behind this facade. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So with this, like real quick, actually, let me just kind of start right here. Let's why don't you go ahead and just tell me about this project. Right. I couldn't do it justice at all. But tell me tell me what you're doing. OK, so. This is force of nature that landed in my lap about two and a half years ago um, with this autistic student pilot group, as I refer to it. But the actual, I guess, story starts about 20 years ago when one of the students in this pilot group, I came in contact with his family when I was a freshman in college. I was home for the summer and was babysitting. I was a summer nanny for a family. And the Blankenships lived two doors down. So I got to know their family, started babysitting for them. At the time, Reese, their son, had just turned two not long before I met them and had just received received his autism diagnosis. And so when I intersected their family, they were on the very, I guess, forefront of their journey as an autism family. So 
I was babysitting, but then when I would be at their house, I would, you know, I was very intrigued by Reese and all of his therapies. And so they had set up a therapy center basically down in their basement and they had different therapists coming in and doing, you know, different forms of therapy. I think at the time, if I remember correctly, the name of the therapy that I got trained to do was called Lobos. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I was just really interested the the family always had, you know, kind of video monitors in the room to observe the therapist and Reese. And so I, we were just watching one day and I told Reese's mom that I, I said, I could do that. I want to do that. And like so I the got therapy trained. part? Yes. Yep. And it was just, you know, it was, I think one hour increments and it was, I mean, this is 20 years ago. So, you know, it was doing different activities, I think where you would, I, I don't know if it was pointing to things. I I really hate to say too much because I really can't remember. But, and there was these, I remember these big giant three ring binders and it was, you know, the date and time and who the therapist was. And, you know, you, there was like some kind of little scoring system just, I guess, to figure out if he was progressing. And so I did that for a while and I enjoyed it. I went back to school down in Statesboro. And so I became less of a, you know, a consistent person in Reese's therapy world. And also, I was not a very good therapist for Reese because the fact that he couldn't speak to me, now he could communicate. I mean, he could walk me over to the refrigerator and, and you know, put my hand on the milk and you know, he could do things. So when I was babysitting for them, he could communicate enough to where I knew what he needed. But the therapy was very challenging for me because I felt bad trying to keep him on task and and doing this when it seemed at times where he didn't want to be doing it. And I just felt bad because he could not speak to me with his words and say, Collins, I hate this. I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore, or I love this. I want to keep going. And I just wasn't, you know, so, so if you were talking to Lou, which at some point you may, she would say, yeah, Collins is the the first therapist we ever had to fire because she wasn't tough enough. So, so anyway, but I continued to babysit for their family. We became, you know, very close to their family. Reese's older sisters were junior bridesmaids in our wedding. They threw me a baby shower, you know, so, so 20 years passed by from the time that I met him in 1997 and when he had his communication breakthrough. So it was November of 2014 and I was standing in Target in the Starbucks line. I was going to get some coffee before I was doing some Christmas shopping. And I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw this video that Lou had posted and the, you know, the little message that she posted with it was, you know, after a very long journey, we have finally found the, the key to Reese's communication. And the video was taken from behind. And so Reese was sitting at a table with a therapist and he was holding a letter, the therapist holding a letter board in front of him. And he, the, the caption in the video explained that she had just described to him and sh- well shown him a picture of a boy that was drowning in a pond of water, I think. And she was asking him to describe the picture and what he thought about it. So after 20 years of knowing this individual and, and, you know, only having really a one-way verbal dialogue with him. I watched him tap out on the letter board. He is drowning in his own worst nightmare. And so I was bawling, crying in the middle of Target. 
And people are looking at me like, you know, lady, you're going to get your coffee. Don't worry. (laughs) I just, you know, I couldn't believe it. I came home, I showed my husband and I immediately reached out to Lou and I'm like, you know, I've got, I've, we've got to talk. You've got to tell me, you know, the story you've got to explain to me. So that was right before, right before Thanksgiving. So, you know, the Thanksgiving Christmas holidays. And so, you know, we're all busy. So I wasn't able to get together with her until that first week in January. But in that time between, I of course was obsessively checking her page. <laughs> she was posting different things that he was saying on the letter boards. And I was just, I mean, it was a very tearful holiday for me and I'm sure for their family as well. And so we finally got together and, um, in January, she and I went to lunch. So I didn't see Reese. It, we, we didn't meet at her house. So I didn't see him until a few months later, but she explained to me the story. And basically in a nutshell, she found another mom on a autistic parents blog that was talking about her daughter being able to communicate for the first time using these, you know, spelling to communicate. And so fortunately that mom lives here in the greater Atlanta area. Um, and so the two of them got together, the, the girl's mom started, you know, she kind of explained, this is how you get started and whatnot. And, um, long story short, there was a therapist who's out of Virginia. Her name is Elizabeth Vossler and she's a speech pathologist And she had been trained in this particular form of alternative and augmentative communication. And so she, they got a few families together. They're known as the core four because in that first workshop in November of 2014, there were four spellers here in Atlanta that were getting, getting going. So it was a three day workshop and Elizabeth worked intently with all four of the the students and their families and that was when they all refer to their, you know, communication breakthrough breakthrough. That was that weekend. So they, that's where their, their story began. And so I intersected them about, um, you know, a few months later. So we go to, when we're at lunch, I told Lou that I had seen a lot of stuff on Facebook that she had been posting where Reese was, he had communicated to his parents that his eyes didn't work together that they worked against each other. And so he could not track words on a page left or right, but you know, he can hear and understand everything. He Mm -hmm. always has his whole life. And so he was requesting to listen to audiobooks. And one of the books that he had listened to was the life of Pi. And so I told Lou to tell Reese that I was going to buy the book and read it and that I was going to come over and we were going to have a book discussion. And so I did. And in March of 2015, I went over to Reese's house and for the first time in 19 years had a two-way dialogue with him. What was that like? It was, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday, but it was overwhelming. I mean, I can't even imagine if it, if I try and process my feelings about the whole experience, I can't even imagine actually being his mom mm-hmm. or his dad or his sibling. He has two sisters. And, but I walked down there and so she, Lou says to me, okay, you know, just, just talk to him. I mean, even though he's making these sounds and even though he might not be looking at you or if he gets up and wanders around the room, just he's hearing everything. And so just talk to him and then he'll answer on the letter board. And so he, you know, he wanted to jump right into it. He said, 
Collins, what did you think about the book? And I was cool. like, wait a second. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. So I had a picture of me and him from 1997. He was three years old and we're sitting on the couch and I'm, he's like wrapped in a blanket and I was feeding him a bottle and I showed it to him and I said, Reese, do you remember me with you at this age? And he said, of course, what did you think about the book? Like he's, oh. you know, he's like, I waited a long time. <laughs> yeah. Enough already lady. Like, let's talk about this book. I loved it. And I said, okay, well, here's what I thought about the book. I said, I thought about you a lot when I was reading it because I think you and Pi have a lot in common. You both have spent a long time in isolation and you both seem to have had a very real encounter with God. And I said that because in all these posts from November to January or March, when I'm finally, you know, face to face with him, there were a lot of stuff that Reese was saying that was very spiritually natured. And his response to me was, I believe that God reveals himself in times of solitude and reflection. And I just was bawling. Wow. And, you know, and his mom's crying. And, and I said, well, Reese, your mom might not remember this, but I certainly do. And I, I believe that God reveals himself to some people, me included, in dreams. And I said, there was a time when I, when you were much younger and I was still babysitting you, I dreamt that I walked in your house and you came up to me and you were talking. And I was so overwhelmed with, you know, excitement in that dream that I was actually, when I woke up, I was crying and I just, you know, I'm like bawling, trying to get the words out. And I said, I'm just so glad that this is a validation that dreams do come true. And, you know, I'm crying, his mom is crying and he, he said, no need for tears. And I was like, I have, you know, buddy, I have been waiting for this for a long time. You're going to have to give me a minute. Right. And that, so that, that moment, I mean, it was just, I mean, I can't, it was very surreal, you know, very surreal. After that little exchange, Lou and I went back to lunch again, same Mexican restaurant, you know, same, you know, again, we're bawling as she's, you know, we're talking more about the story, but when we're sitting there, I mean, I, I kept having all these mind explosions, you know, like, oh my God. I mean, he has been hearing and understanding everything. I mean, he went all the way through the public high school special education program until he aged out at 21 and a half or night, whatever it is, 20 and a half. I can't remember the age. And he, he was never assessed on his true intellectual capability because he did not have the, the adequate communication tool. Mm -hmm. And I, I, so I'm just sitting there and I'm like, my hands are waving all in the air. These people at this restaurant are staring at us. Cause it's like, I'm crying and she's crying. And, and I said, I, I remember saying he needs to be tested law. And, and I said, laws have to change. And, you know, I was just, and she said, well, I agree, but you recognize how long like social change and, you know, policy, how long it takes to, but so again, at that point it was Reese and three other individuals here in Atlanta. And I said, you know what? I mean, I didn't sleep for several months after all this encounter because I, I just, I'd lay awake at night thinking of all these different aspects of what their life must have been like, you know, living in a house with your family and everyone else is communicating back and forth all the time. And you're just sitting there like, like a, a, a viewer of your own TV set. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, you know, I said, what, what are they all saying? I mean, when you've not been able to communicate what you really wanted to communicate your entire life, like, where do you start? Do you start by saying, 
you know what? I hate tacos. And if you feed me one more taco, I'm going to punch the wall. Like, what do you say? (laughs) And she said, well, they're saying a lot, but the common thread that all four of them are saying is that they want to go to college. And so we're sitting there at Frontera and she was telling me that they had a volunteer graduate student from Duke University who is, is related to one of the students and had volunteered to teach a course on Native Americans and the white settlement to the students. She had just taught it to her peers as part of her graduate program. And she said, well, if they want to, you know, if they want to see if they can hang in that college level course, I'll teach it to them. But she's up at Duke University and they're here in Atlanta. And so Lou was explaining to me, you know, we need to find a space where we can we can Google Hangout with them and the instructor. And at the time she said, you know, it's my job. I volunteer to look around, see if we can you know, reserve a hotel conference room or whatever. Now, I'm going to pause here and say. At that time. I was the director of alumni relations for Perimeter College, which then became Perimeter College of Georgia State University. And Lou was one of our alums. She went to the she graduated from the dental hygiene program back in the 80s. And so she's sitting there talking about how am I going to find a room? And and I just looked at her and I said, well, Lou, it would really suck if you knew someone who worked at a college (laughs) who could who could reserve a classroom. And she you know, it's like, really, could you do that? And I'm like, I don't see why not, you know? And so I literally left lunch. I went back to the campus. I started talking to some folks about, you know, what spaces on campus would be, you know, would be suitable for what they needed. And, and I, I made a 14 week room reservation on Thursdays from 1030 to 1230. And so we, we started having the class. I mean, we figured out Google Hangouts and we, we, got it all done. And every Thursday for 14 weeks, they participated in this class and it were engaged like any other college student I've observed intellectually, you know, discussions with their peers, doing homework, doing a final project. And what was really interesting at the time, right before I had, right before this lunch meeting where she said they want to go to college, um, I, I had been planning to go get my master's. I was planning on getting a master's in social work. I didn't really understand or know at the time where I wanted that to take me or where where God was leading me in it. I just, and what was interesting is we had just had this big announcement of a consolidation. There was all these people leaving and getting laid off. And I just felt like it was a good times for me to do a gut check. And I remember praying for affirmation and direction, you know, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on right now is, is social work, the direction you want me to be going. And if so, like, who do you want me to be helping? I mean, I like kids, I have a fondness for, you know, all things military, Mm. but I, I, you know, I just didn't really know. And, and, the only stipulation I asked of the families was, can I sit in on the classes? I'm just really interested in, and it took about two or three weeks into them giving these very thoughtful answers and, and dialogue in these classes. And I thought, Oh my God, okay. They want to go to college. I'm on the inside of higher education. I'm going in a direction of getting a master's in social work, which is to help you know, marginalized and typically oppressed populations of people. And so I'm thinking I'm seeing all these things coming together. So anyway, a few weeks into the course, though, what I realized is that, you know, these families, their whole family dynamics are are turned upside down. I mean, I, I'm sure for all of them, when they 
get the initial diagnosis and, you know, okay, your, your child is non-speaking and has very little communication and, you know, this is autism and he's on the spectrum and, and, you know, here's a few places we can refer you to. So that's one, you know, layer of shakeup. But then for, you know, for some of these families, 20 years goes by and you, you're, you've gotten accustomed to and conditioned to operating in a family system and in a home environment in one way. Meanwhile, all the families I've worked with, they're all the time being inclusive and with their, with their kids and they they do everything, every vacation, everything that the rest of the family does, they're there. But then you get one, then it's like, Oh, you've been my son for 20 years, but now I'm actually really getting to know you because now you can tell me if you like tacos or not. Right. And so it's one whole other layer of shakeup, which is probably more, you know, earth shattering in a good way than the initial shakeup of the diagnosis. And so the more time that I spent talking with the families, the more I realized, you know, they're, they're all trying to like they're all trying to orient themselves into what could be the new normal and the new box of opportunities for their, their students. And so I, but I could also, they were, they were so excited and they were spinning in so different, so many different directions that I I didn't feel like they were really getting any traction in one, you know, in one thing. And so I had reached out to them two years ago and asked them if they wanted to, I mean, I, and part of my job, I mean, a lot of what I do is strategic planning and, you know, needs assessment and putting long-term and short-term strategy together and whatnot. And so I said, would you like for me to, you know, we can have meetings once a month where it's just the parents here. So y'all don't have to worry about, you know, participating in the conversation and then making sure your child doesn't, you know, eat the dry erase marker. Cause I mean, that's a real possibility, right? With right. This group. Right. And so, so we, we, I said, you know, I'll just, I don't have all the answers. And I, I mean, I'm so new into learning all this world of autism and the terminology and all that, but I can ask you questions and you can take time to, to think about the answers. And more importantly, your student can. I mean, now that they can communicate, that's what this is all about. Like, what do you want to do to the student? And so we started doing this and I developed a like a strategic plan in sections where it was just me asking them questions, basically. But it it provoked them thinking about what their strengths and what their challenges would be and all this. But anyway, all that to say a couple of sessions into it, what really became clear was that since they wanted to go to college, but four of the five, this grew to five students, one more was added. So four of the five are of age where they could, you know, go to college. The, the girl Graciela, she, at the time I met her was 11. So she's 13 now. So of the college age parents, it was okay. If we, if your child wants to go to, to college then, and they did not graduate from high school with a true high school diploma, then we need to go back we need to help them get their GEDs and then they'll have, you know, one of the basic minimum requirements for college admissions. And so I, prior to working with the university system, I worked with the technical college system of Georgia, which is in Georgia, that's where the GED or one of the places where the GED is administered. And so I reached out to one of my friends at Gwinnett Technical College she put me in touch with the disability services coordinator and within 30 minutes I had an email saying I want to meet with you. I want to hear more about these students. Wow. And specifically, I want to hear about how they're communicating because I have a nonverbal 
autistic nephew who's 27 years old and I know that he's in there. Wow. And wow. so in that, I mean, we, at some point, I think a movie could be made of that would be called, you can't make this stuff up. And it would be <laughs> because I mean, literally every, every little milestone of this GED journey, when we've reached out to someone or even, you know, been around different contacts that have come into the fold, there's some connection. There's some connection to, you know, I have a child with autism or I have a nephew. It's just, you can't make it up. And it's just a reminder to me. I mean, and I think the, the, all the parents feel this way and I know the students feel this way too, because they're very vocal about, you know, they do feel like they are exactly how, you know, God created them to be. They're not, one of them said during one of this, the planning sessions, he said, I wasn't, I'm, I'm not here to be cured I'm here to be accepted. And what's really interesting is, you know, I've been on the periphery of this whole autism world for 20 years, just knowing this family. I'm not trained. My degree from from my undergraduate um, is in public relations. It has nothing to do with OT or anything medical. So I haven't been trained in one way of thinking. I haven't been trained in ABA. I haven't been mm -hmm. trained in, you know, whatever all the other ones are, I don't even know. So for me... I feel very blessed to have come in contact with this group of students and and their way of communicating, which is spelling to communicate. And it could be spelling on a stencil board. It could be spelling on a you know, laminated letter board. It could, some of them are spelling on a keyboard, but they spell. That's the whole point. Great. And so I didn't have to undo any of my thinking. I haven't spent 20 years researching autism and, you know, thinking that this was, you know, this was it for what we could do for enriching the lives of an autistic individual. All I had to do was see that video in the middle of Target and that was it. So I understand and I've learned in the last two and a half years that it, you know, for some parents and for some educators and for some physicians and for some therapists, you know, it is, a, it's challenging what they've, you know, the, the way in which they've been trained. And it's not to say that any of these, any of these other different forms of therapies and communication. I mean, I think, I think there is a huge umbrella of AAC of, of alternative communication. And I think that these letter boards are one of the many things under that big umbrella of communication. But for these families that, and I know for, for Reese's family in particular, I mean, they have traveled all over the country. They've tried everything. Reese's dad is a dentist. So he's very, he has that, you know, science and, and medicine um, and, you know, research mind. And so he's, you know, they've searched, they've read, they've traveled, they've tried it all. And this is the first and only thing that has ever worked for them. Let me ask you something real yeah. quick. Do you think, so we're dealing with, you know, young adults, right? And, you know, when you, when you think back, do you think that there was, it was just a matter of timing, right? That like only enough people kind of needed to experience alternative ways to communicate. And then, you know, Reese just ended up kind of intersecting with that at some point. Or do you think that there's, I mean, cause we have an advantage now for, for any of, you know, our community that's listening right now, if their child's nonverbal, that, you know, I would encourage them to try to explore as many, you know, just from a, just from hearing the story, as many different ways to try to communicate with their child. But I'm wondering if, if those methods exist before, or if you also believe that like, we're just getting more and more, we're, we're identifying more and more ways to communicate now. 
What are your thoughts? For Reese, so when you say a timing stamp, I mean, I don't know, do you mean timing insofar as his his own like like physical or human development, or do you mean timing in you know what's out there and available? Well, maybe more what's out there and available. Okay. Right. And I mean, sure, I, I would imagine like I was sitting down with Mikey and my wife was as well earlier and we were playing this, you know, game on the tablet where it's a spelling game and he's getting a little bit frustrated. So I know he's not a speller yet. Right. So I would imagine that it would be, you know, later on in his life where he'd be mature enough to spell to communicate through spelling also. So I realize that's a factor too, but I'm just wondering if like, you know, some of these methods weren't, you know, weren't really understood or even explored as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if it wasn't like, Hey, there's a method and Hey, he's able to spell and those two together really amplified. So, okay. So the, the, the spelling method or theory, whatever you want to call it, that, that, he has is using and as well as all these other spellers it's rpm are have you heard of rpm are you familiar with it i am not okay rpm stands for rapid prompting movement or motion one of those two um <laughs> and so rpm has been around for Twenty plus years, twenty thirty years. I have not spent a lot of my time with this group. Has not been in actually delving in and you know reading all the books. And it's been more spent. I mean, I've allocated my time more so to creating relationships and conversation and helping them get on their way to the GED. However, what I do know in my time with them, so Soma, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce her last name right. um, because I will mess it up. But Starts she, with an M and ends with a lot of other letters. I'm looking Mukha at Padai. I think it's Soma Mukha Padai. Okay. Um, but Soma. And this is part of the reason why I love the story. Um, Soma is a mom and I believe that she is from India. Her son is autistic. Tito, And right? yes, Yes. So you are you from you are familiar? Well, I just uh, I did a little bit of research, so I am now. Okay. I'm I am uh, I'm a paragraph into my familiarity. Okay. So you're an expert. <laughs> right. So you are an expert. Yes. <laughs> so okay. So Soma and her son. So she and I believe Soma. I believe she was. I don't think she has a medical background. I think she was a civil engineer. But when when Tito wasn't communicating verbally, she just, and I don't know how, cause again, I haven't read all the books, but, but she realized that he could point and spell out. And so, so she, that's how began, that's how RPM began. That's how the, this, you know, her version of spelling to communicate began. And so over the years, she, what she was able to do is she was able to recreate the process and the pattern and the, you know, the, the training on it. And it all is centered around the fact that these individuals, and, and I, again, I'm not an autism expert. I don't know necessarily, and I, I don't believe that this applies to the full spectrum. But for these individuals, they don't have a cognitive disability or a learning disability. They have a motor functioning impairment. So they, there is a huge brain-body disconnect and they have said themselves, I know that it's kind of annoying when we're out in public and, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm making these noises and I can't stop walking around or whatever. But what they have all communicated in some form or fashion is I'm not in control of my body. And one of the students in particular always refers to it as my wayward body, my devilish body, my wayward body. And so, you know, they're in there and but they can be thinking, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. But the more, you know. 
yeah. And Reese has said, the more I try and regulate myself, the worse it gets because it, it's like stresses his body out. And Reese, this, I really thought this was interesting. Reese had told his mom at some point in the last um, few years that, because, you know, I mean, <laughs> there was this, a round of conversation in these families. It's like, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm so sorry it took us so long to get a hold of this and figure this out and, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, all of them has said in their own way, you know, well, we knew you were trying to, we knew that you were doing the best you could. It's okay. Like, let's just move on. Mm-hmm. I have a lot to catch up on. Aww. And so, but, but Reese had said that the, the ABA therapies that he was doing all those hours and days and weeks and months when he was younger, in his mind, he believes that that really did help him with some of his, some of his regulation and some of his, you know, motor skills. And so, so anyway, so Soma, you know, she creates this, she figures this out. She, at some point in their lives, I don't know how old Tito was. She moves to the U S and sets up shop. I don't know if she came to Austin initially, but she has a, her RPM therapy center in Austin, Texas, that she's operated there for, for years. So and, you have family in Austin. We just moved from Austin and I feel like I missed, I've, I feel like I missed out on, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to go back. Now. Well, but I, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So, so over the years, you know, so families, I mean, Soma's, center in Austin, from what I understand, I've not ever been there myself, but it is just a revolving door of families that come there and, and work with Soma and she works with the students and, and she's, I mean, she's mad. I mean, it's, it's magical, but here's the, here's the thing. So all these other therapists and all these other individuals, you know, they, they learn the technique and they study it and they read her books and, you know, and I will say, I've never read a book I've never been, I've never met Soma. I wasn't trained formally, but I spent two and a half years with these students. And I really wanted to be able, if I was going to be advocating for them, I really wanted to be familiar with what it was like to serve as a communication partner and hold the boards for the students. Because it's it's definitely not something, you can't just pick up a board, stick it in front of a student and say, tell me what you think. It's, It's very similar to the process of a sign language interpreting and that trust factor that exists between a deaf or hard of hearing individual and their sign language interpreter, because essentially you're giving your voice to this person who may or may not represent you accurately. So I, Reese was kind enough to allow me to learn to be a communication partner on the boards with him. And for about a year, I went to his house on Mondays for two hours. And I wrote my own lessons. In the beginning, you know, when you're first getting started with someone, you do teach ass lessons. And so it's a, it's a few, you, you know, you, and I chose World War II. And I, so I wrote lessons on World War II and I infused different memorabilia of my grandparents who were in World War II. And so I would write the lessons and then I'd go over there and I'd, you know, do it and Reese would answer questions and we'd have dialogue. And so anyway, I, I'm not, I'm not fluent on the boards and I'm certainly not, you know, an expert on getting, I, I've never worked on the boards with someone who was just getting started, but there is. And for anyone listening, because I know that y'all are in the Virginia area, the the therapist who first worked with Reese, her name is Elizabeth Bossler, and she has a therapy center in Herndon, Virginia. And so she is very close and I'll be happy to 
to share all that information with you, Mike. So, um, so yeah, there at this point, there there are little pockets of communities all over the country and even the world of students who are using this spelling to communicate based on the RPM <laughs> methods. And in Reese's words, it works really well for anyone who's dedicated to following the program. And, you know, what he means by that is, you know, it's all about training your motor skills. And so you start off and the students are poking, poking with a pencil through a stencil board and they're just training and they're getting their, you know, their motor skills going. And then as they hone in those skills, they can go to, you know, a smaller version of a laminated letter board. And then Reese is actually typing independently now on a laptop that is, position kind of at an angle that's on a podium. Like if he's sitting at a desk, it's kind of at a podium. So it's slanted and, you know, he can type independently. And the prompting part of it is, and this is what I think a lot of people, especially who, you know, there, there is a lot of, I guess, doubt or question when, you know, who's guiding or who's, there's no physical like moving or manipulating of the student's arm. Mm -hmm. And, but the prompting comes in and I learned this firsthand when I was working with Reese the prompting comes in when, you know, sometimes their, their motor gets stuck and they kind of get in this loop and you have to, you're, you're really essentially serving as a cheerleader. So if I'm holding the board for Reese and, you know, I'm, I know that he's spelling, you know, I know what he's going to say because it's an answer. You know, it's like, if I said, Reese, what's my daughter's name? And he's spelling out Emerson. If he kind of gets stuck and he's like, you know, can't get his arm going the prompting comes in when you're saying something like go, 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 or keep going, or you're most there, or, you know, up, up, up kind of thing. It's anything. It doesn't even have to be, it doesn't even have to be, it can be anything, anything that the student says, this is what I need to help keep me going to keep my brain and my body in sync and on track. So, so that's, that's a very quick kind of, I guess, overview of, of RPM in the process. And, but getting back to the GED, we, over the last two years, we've, it's been a long, slow process. The technical college and the GED for all of the country have never served a non-speaking speller in the GED realm. And so this is kind of a, I guess we're forging a path as far as the GED is concerned. And so we've, it started with some, you know, some conversations between me and some faculty or staff at Gwinnett Technical College. The students went up there for a tour of the college and so that the staff there could see them and and understand the way in which they communicate. They were TABE tested, which is like an assessment test, the test of adult and basic education. Mm -hmm. And that is to figure out where they would place in the GED prep courses. So they were tape tested. They all used their letter boards to take the test. The director of adult education at Gwinnett Technical College sees a lot of potential in this and sees it as an opportunity to do something pretty groundbreaking for this population of students who have been traditionally underserved. So she said back in January, she said, I'll find the funds. We're going to have a pilot class and they're going to do a GED prep course and we're going to make this happen. So they handpicked a GED prep course instructor who has spent a great deal of time working with students with disabilities. And we had a little meet and greet with her so she could kind of prepare herself for what 
a classroom environment with them would be like, right. um, if there's any such thing as preparing. And so they did it. They did it this summer. And unfortunately, all the all, the four families that that went through the process at this point, they had requ- they have requested the special accommodations for the actual GED GED test that their students need. And the word we got back two weeks ago was that additional information was required to approve the accommodations. So we're still in the negotiation phase of the actual GED test right. because that is owned by Pearson, which is a private entity. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, it's an interesting conversation because you've got a federally funded program with lots of regulations that come along with it, which of course, from a federal standpoint, they're bound to you know, ADA and, you know, what the Department of Justice says. And then you've got the technical colleges who, you know, have to be in compliance with federal regulations and whatnot. And and they have been. They've been more than accommodating and welcoming to this population of students. So it'll be interesting to get this third prong of, of the triangle, which is Pearson, to do the right thing. Right. Um, and allow them the the only form of effective communication that they have to achieve their GEDs. So quick question on this. So I know, I know that accommodations need to be made through high school here as well. Do, is there, are there any accommodations or is it just around this particular, you know, communication style? Meaning, you know, if there are children with severe ADD, do they allow, you know, someone to, you know, help them, you know, by either reading out the, the questions or, because my 19-year-old son, he needed some accommodations as well, um, and one of the, a couple of the things were that he could have the test written, read, well, written, <laughs> read to him, or that he could have like multiple choice options removed, like so he would be down to two or three instead of mm-hmm. the regular four or five. So my question is, because I don't know about the GED, do are there accommodations made currently, or is it just no, you come and you do it as we deliver it and accept it, or? Is there, is there oh, yeah. That? Yeah. I mean, there is there is accommodation. I actually had a conference call with the National Accommodations Manager last October. It was myself and the Disability Services Director for the Technical College and then the statewide director of GED testing services from the state of Georgia was we were all on this conference call. And so, you know, we asked the question, so what, so what accommodations are already, you know, standard and, you know, extended time and a separate classroom and a scribe and a reader and, Got it. Yeah. you know, all, so, so yeah, I mean, they're, you know, I think the, I think the, the sticking point is the, um, the known versus the unknown communication partner. They, mm. I mean, they, they, they would provide they a scribe typically, right? Yeah, right. they would. So it's. Again, I go back to sign language interpreter. So if they have as a student that says, you know, I need someone to sign for me, they have, and it's just like with, with perimeter college or any of the other colleges, they have a pool of, you know, certified interpreters that they call and they say, Hey, we have a student that you need to interpret for us. She's taken the GED on this day and time, and we need you to be here. So, however, these students can't just sit down with someone that they've never met before and have the comfort level and ability to to communicate mm-hmm. and and to work with that person. It's just not the way it is. I think for all of them, I think the more the more people they work with, the easier it is. 
And maybe the longer that they've been communicating through spelling, the easier it is. But it, it simply can't be, you know, just some. Now, none of these families are asking for it to be the mom or the dad or, you know, I mean, that's obvious. Sure. But to have a, a certified licensed therapist who is trained and has had some relationship or history working with the student. So the level of comfort there, you know, that's that's essentially what what they're what they're going for. So it'll, you know, it'll be interesting. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of room between absolutely no and yeah, you can do whatever you want. I mean, I understand as well as the students and the parents understand, you know, their ultimate responsibility is to maintain the integrity of the testing environment and to make sure that, that it is the student that's providing the answers and input and, and earning the GED. And I think, I, like I said, I think there's a lot of room of in-between and how you work to that place. 50 years ago, the American Sign Language, you know, standard American Sign Language was was a new thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize how how recent in history sign language came about and, and kind of broke into the academic scene. And what's interesting is a couple of years ago, when the class first got started, I realized I needed to bring in some people from campus to observe and see what was going on. And so I brought in our director of disability services who I'd never met before. And by the way, went to Clemson and got his master's in his, his thesis was on serving students on the autism spectrum. Wow. So I'm like, Oh, okay. Well I have a student or I have a group of students. Yeah. Come on down to the library. And so he sat and he observed and he said, okay, well, you know, if, if they're enrolled students here, you know, this is all the things we would need to figure out to, you know, how we would serve them. And, but in one of our discussions, you know, he was, he was being very honest about, you know, the fact that there would be some speculation, you know, years and years ago, there was a big stink in the world of communication partners when facilitated communication, there were, I don't know all the details, so I don't want to, I don't want to I guess, speak too much about it, but there were some instances where it was revealed that a, you know, the, the aide was giving the answers. Right. And so there was a lot of, you know, bad rap with that. And a lot of, you know, I think it casts a lot of shadow of doubt. And, and typically, I mean, you have an individual, I mean, these guys will say themselves, you have an individual who has all these physical outward, you know, presentations going on. And so, to the average person who's not spent any time around any individual with a disability, you know, I mean, their inclination, their human instinct is to assume that, that they don't have anything going on cognitively, right? that they're not as brilliant as they are. And so, so I do, you know, I do think that they're, they have a lot of things working against them, you know, obviously, but what was interesting is, you know, Michael and I, director of disability services, were sitting there one day and I'm like, he said, you know, I wonder when American Sign Language first started, I wonder what their process was in, you know, breaking into society and breaking into the academic world and, and allowing education to be an opportunity for the deaf. And I said, well, you know, we have a sign language interpreting program at the other campus. So why don't we just walk <laughs> over there? And, you know, so I, I went and I talked to the, the, the woman who runs the sign language interpreting program and you know, I walked in her office one day and I said, can you tell me how sign language got started? Hmm. And she did, you know, she told me, and what was baffling to me was how recent in history that was and, you know, all the challenges and as she, for them, and as she was explaining this to me, 
I was like, Oh my God. Okay. You need to come talk to this group of students. And, and you know, and she's like, by the way, why are you asking me? That? Mm-hmm. And so I explained it to her and she came and presented to the students and their families and a few other you know guests that we brought in. She explained the deaf community's process into getting a communication tool that was effective for them and, and how hard they had to fight to, to rid themselves of the, you know, I mean, obviously we all, you know, we all know that schools for the deaf, I mean, it, they used to be called schools for the deaf, dumb, and blind. Right. So nice. there's a lot of ingrained, just stereotypical assumptions just in the way that, that we used to be. Yep. Right. And so um, what was so fascinating about that day is one of my favorite experiences in working with these students is that they, their feedback when she was done presenting, you know, they were saying, this is, this is so inspiring and so hopeful and knowing that, you know, our, our peers in the disability community, you know, that they were successful in breaking through and breaking into society. And, you know, and she was about to cry the whole time because she was so humbled and inspired because she has spent so long working with one population of disabled people Mm. and she had never really been around autism. And she was like, listen, whatever, whatever I can do for you or whatever we can do for, for your group, let us know. And so, you know, I mean, I, I've said this so many times in the last two and a half years, there was a time when American sign language didn't exist. And now it's like a thing of the the past that, you know, a deaf person cannot be referred to a communication tool. There was a time when RPM or spelling to communicate or AAC, whatever, whatever the PC way of saying it is, there was a time when these letter boards did not exist. And 10, 15, 20 years from now, I mean, I, my hope is that it will be something that's so infused into public education and private education and the autism community and all of the community, all of anywhere you go, whether it's the grocery store or the bank, that, that it will not be such a foreign thing to see someone in line behind you in the post office, whipping out a spelling board mm-hmm. or, you know, a letter board and, and spelling out. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what, it, what do you, well, let me, let me get to this. So as far as organization goes, right. I mean, you've, you've obviously got a passion, you know, to help these people. And I, and I love that, you know, you, you hit on something that I think that is really cool and um, I can relate to is that like, I've, I'm not formally trained in any of this stuff. I heard you say, but I, I see problems and I have, I'm creative in my head and I also have access to people that I can go to, to ask. Right. And it's just like, there's a problem. Let me help solve it. Right. So mm-hmm. I love that. So within the past couple years though, have you, have you started to put, you know, sort of structure around this? Is this, do you see this becoming kind of a program within, within, Atlanta or even Georgia greater or bigger still, are you, are you, are you looking down the road to, you know, to that, that sort of, I don't know, structure or. So, so the community itself has, has organized. And I think from what I've heard from some of the main providers, communication partner providers, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. is that Atlanta has the, the largest and the most collaborative group community. Um, of any anywhere in the country. And so 
the, the core four families, along with a couple of schools, uh, private schools here, um, and a couple of therapists, two and a half years ago, well, I, I guess almost three years ago, November, this November will be three years since the first Atlanta workshop. So within three years, there were four families, and now there are close to 100 families in this, in this metro Atlanta area that are spelling. Wow. The group organized itself, you know, organizationally, um, it's called Atlanta Every Voice Matters. They have a few people who are the key um, leaders of the community. One's an OT and one is a parent, the very first parent that, that, whose child was using RPM here in Atlanta. They hold monthly workshops um, that are free and open to the public for any families who are at any point in the spelling to communicate journey. It's a very supportive environment, you know, discussing tips of what works and what didn't work and how to tweak something to, and they bring in speakers occasionally. Um, and more importantly, I mean, it's just the, it's the, support system. Um, you know, like you were saying, I, I listened to your introductory podcast and, you know, you were talking about just building a community of people who understand in some big or small way, what it's like to be an autism family. And this is a very nurturing environment here in Atlanta. Um, so, so there, that is an organization that's already going. Is there, I meant, is there a website real quick? Because I, I did a quick search here too, just for Atlanta, every voice matters. And I didn't see anything that jumped right out. Is there some place we could point to listeners? Yes. Um, and if you don't have I it believe, right now, that's okay. We can, we'll put it in the yeah. show notes for people to take a look at. Right. I will send you, I'll send you several resources. I think, I think primarily they operate as part of a closed Facebook group, Okay, but I can definitely follow up with that. So along the way, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, I started my master's of social work. I'm, I'm in starting year two of a three-year program. And what I hope to do when I graduate is to, is to shift my, you know, my past higher ed experience has all been in alumni relations and marketing and fundraising. But where I want to remain the rest of my career is in disability services. Now, what's interesting is, you, you know, I, I know your child is a little bit younger, but there's a common or there's a trend happening in the country right now within higher education. And it is with these different, they call them inclusive college programs and, you know, different colleges might call it different things, but, but ultimately is to expand the school experience from, you know, when you age out of the special education program of your area, you know, local high school, you can continue on with that college experience. These programs are, um, I don't believe at this point there's any scholarships associated with it or student, you know, financial aid. So the majority of them are, you know, out of pocket for the families, depending on which college or university. I mean, I've talked to Ohio State, I've talked to UGA, I've talked to, um, you know, most of the bigger institutions here in Georgia. So they all vary a little bit, but the goal is to give students a college experience. They have to be independent. They have to be able to navigate the college campus by themselves. Some of them are day students where they come to campus during the day. Some are, you know, they live on campus. They may audit courses. You know, they can sit in on a course here and there. It's more geared towards life skills and social skills so that they can, you know, have some, I guess, some diversity in their daily living in adulthood 
which are all good things. And for the students who cognitively or intellectually, academically, whatever, who aren't truly aren't able to earn a college degree. And this is an experience that is enriching to them and, and good for them. That's great. That is great. Because I think anytime you bring any kind of diversity to a, to a campus or any you know community situation, you're improving the, the whole because you're, you're just, you're diversifying the experiences and the shared, you know, um, differences among all the, the students. But for neurodiversity, to have students on campus that have, you know, these different intellectual and motor difference, different motor profiles, different intellectual profiles, different, different anything. So these, these programs are good. Um, the students that I've dealt with and have, you know, been advocating for the GED, they want a college degree. And when they get their college degrees, they want to go out into the workforce and they want to earn, you know, earn a salary and they want to be as independent as they possibly can. I was going to ask about that. What's, what's, what is Reese's goal? What's like, uh, what's, I get it. Want to go to college. Is it the experience for him? Is it, is it beyond college for him? What is it for him? So it's interesting you selected Reese for that question. And I'll, so I'll answer about Reese and then some of the others. So Reese Reese is committed to getting his GED. However, Reese has had a kind of a bigger passion and vision that he's been cultivating over the last few years. Very early on into his spelling to communicate, he conveyed to his family that he wanted to open a multi-purpose therapy center for the autistic community here in Atlanta. Wow. And he is uh, very close to doing that. Um, That's awesome. So it's called Recliff, spelled R-E with a capital C, L-I-F-F, and his first name is Reese. His middle name is Clifton. This, um, so he and and his family, he they did you know like a market analysis, and they are putting a business development plan together. And he did not want, in his words, he did not want his father to bear the financial burden of his business. So he created a GoFundMe. And so, and I will certainly put this in one of the follow-up links. So this space, they have the space, they're working on the lease negotiations with the, with the owner of the, the property, but this, this facility will have, it will have places for exercise therapy. It will have places for classes. He has said, I would love to offer GED classes at my center. It will have, you know, they'll have OTs that are you know, on hand regularly, they will, they'll welcome families who are interested in the letter boards and they'll have certified people there to get new students going on the letter boards. So, so that's Reese's thing. I haven't asked him recently if he, if he, you know, is going to try and tag team both going to college and, and being an entrepreneur <laughs> and becoming an entrepreneur. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Um, I haven't asked him that, but the others, you know, they do, you know, they do, um, they do want to go to college. Graciela, she's 13 now. She was 11 when I met her. She told her mom early on that she wanted to go to MIT and study quantum physics. So I had to look up what that meant. Um, <laughs> And then um, I still am not quite sure, but I did when I visited Boston a couple of years ago, I did buy her an MIT shirt. So I am supporting her in that, even yeah. though I have no idea what that means. Um, I think it means that you get to sit around and talk about things in outer space that nobody can prove or disprove. So you just get to 
you know, you get to wax poetic and, and talk about yeah. stars and gravity, yeah. you know? She did write a letter. So Stephen Hawking, right? He's the, yep. he's the quantum. So she did write a letter to Stephen Hawking. Now that I think about it a couple of years ago that she shared with all of us, she was challenging him on a couple of his theories. So nice. my, so, so when you talk about organizational of all this, I have presented to our, the Dean of our college that these students have been on the campus for the last few years. I did make a formal presentation to him about our students and this pilot program and basically notified him that we as a college community need to prepare ourselves to support these students because like I said, there's about a hundred families in the Atlanta area that are in the pipeline for higher education. There is, so there's also, but it went from four to a hundred in a few years, right? You know, there's, there's Mm -hmm. likely to be, a whole bunch more behind that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And then the other thing I'll say, there's a few other, I have, I have reached out because I want to make this career change for myself. And because I know that this is, this is a population that's only growing and not decreasing. I've reached out in a couple different, you know, uh, Facebook groups and, you know, just, I mean, the community it's, it's spread out, but it's a small community as I'm sure, you know. And so I've only been able to locate a, less than five college students who are currently enrolled in college for credit that are spelling to communicate. I'm a little One bit, of, I'm a little bit blown away that you found five that are, that are in that position that have already like, that have already done what you you guys are trying to get to. You know what I mean? That's well, awesome. yeah. I mean, and, and I guess to be more specific, so there's, there's one in California, there's two in California and one in New Jersey. So, so three that I know of. Got it. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure that there's some others out there, you know, I mean, like Facebook groups aren't the end all be all to, but one of them in particular uh, is out at California Lutheran Channel Islands. And I've been in contact with his mom and him um, throughout this process because we're using him as a precedent for standardized test taking because he took the SAT. I was going to ask. Yep. So he, he, took he got his S- diploma, I'm assuming, right? He didn't right. get GD. He got his diploma. Right. All and right. the reason he did, he was, I believe, 16 or 17 when he started using the letter boards. So he was of age and still like he had not missed the high school diploma boat. So they worked very hard to get him, you know, academically up. He graduated with a high school diploma. And because the letter board and the communication partner was part of his high school IEP, it was grandfathered in for the SAT. That makes sense. And his the SAT and, and I don't know about the ACT, so I don't want to misspeak about that, but the SAT is governed by the college board. Yep. So he, t- he took the SAT. No, so there's four, there's four now that I'm thinking about it. I, I just don't, I haven't communicated with the fourth one. So the fourth one that I just thought about, there's actually a PBS documentary that's, that's debuting in October about him. His name is Deej, D-E-E-J. And he took the ACT using the letter boards. Wow. And he is in college and this, this documentary is about his college experience and inclusion and whatnot. We're doing a film screening on one of our campuses in October in partnership with the Atlanta Every Voice Matters community. So I know a little bit about it and there is a movie trailer. I can send that to you in my list of follow-up links. But so what's interesting about Samuel out at Cal State um, Channel Islands, he's in his third year of school 
He's using the letter boards. He has a communication partner. I had, so I have reached out to his staff support person in the office of disability services there. And so she was kind enough to walk me through. He, he is their first non-speaking student. So they didn't have, you know, a template or a mold to go by of how, you know, how do you serve a college student in, in all of their academic courses mm-hmm. who doesn't speak and who spells to communicate. So, but they figured it out. They figured it out. And it was a collaboration between Samuel serving as his own self-advocate and conveying his needs, his limitations, his, you know, his, his abilities and, and the office of disability services and the faculty that he, you know, that, that has taught him. And it's a fantastic story. And so I, I'm, I have used that as, you know, there's no other students here on, you know, I, we joke, I want to be the East coast version of her. (laughs) And so I think, you know, as these students, as the, the population of students using this method increases and they're pushing the academic limits and, and boundaries and, and, you know, asking, they're essentially asking the question, why can't I sit in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why can't I take these classes? Um, and the answer is they can. And what they are doing, just like that, I go back to what the student said when he said, you know, I'm not here to be cured. I'm here to be accepted. And so I think, so, you know, what I'm it's and it's been so interesting and I guess energizing to me to be working with these students. Meanwhile, working on my master's of social work and, and understanding on a large scale how much our society is based on. If you're lucky enough to fit in this box and, you know, you fit in here, you know, mainstream society, you're lucky. Mm-hmm. You're yep. lucky. You're yep. privileged. You know, you're. Um, but if you're not, mm, we'll kind of we'll put you over here. You know, don't make too much racket, you know, that sort of thing. And sure. so and, you know, another interesting thing, and it's a parallel that I use all the time. Right when I started working with these students and we were doing these classes, I was chairing our college's 50th anniversary celebration. And so we're here in Atlanta and our college opened in 1964. So we're talking right in the middle of the civil rights movement and and not only the civil rights movement, but but here in 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 Atlanta and in Georgia, we're talking about the desegregation of the public schools. And so. You know, the more so we we as a as a community, uh, me as their advocate, you know, these families, the students, I mean, we've drawn a lot of parallels to what they're going through right now. They are in their own civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and we're drawing a lot of parallels. And, you know, essentially what what the African, what the civil rights leaders, what the African-American community, you know, all they were asking for was for the federal government to uphold their own federal laws about, you know, it being illegal to segregate on the basis of the color of skin. And so essentially that's what these students are asking of the federal government, of the academic system, of, you know, the GED, Pearson, who owns the GED. They're asking, I'm just asking you to follow your own federal <laughs> law. Right, you know? right. And and it's just it's just very interesting. And and I will say I'm so, this group of students has humbled me in so many ways. There's so many things I didn't realize I took for granted. And I'll, I'll share one in particular because it's so, it seems so trivial, so, so simple, but it's, so 
one day we were sitting in the classroom and I was looking at Graciela. She's, she's the only girl in this group, this small group on our campus. And I, I'm fascinated. I mean, my daughter's only a few years younger than her. So I'm, you know, I'm always like thinking, I mean, how grateful I am. I mean, my daughter has been, my dad always says, if Emerson is eight years old, then she's been talking for 16 years. Cause she's, <laughs> <laughs> but Graciela, she, you know, one minute she might have like the biggest smile on her face. And the next minute she looks like she's absolutely, you know, like pissed at the world. And, um, and I, it dawned on me, oh my gosh, she, she can't, it doesn't matter what she's thinking or feeling on the inside of her. It shows. If she want, if she wants to be smiling right now, she can't necessarily do that. She can't necessarily like, you know, okay, smile for the picture. Well, she can't necessarily make her, Mm. her face move into a smile. And I just, I guess I never really realized how much I took it for granted that if I am feeling happy or joyful or whatever and want to smile, I can. And, you know, just the, just the simplest things. I mean, you know, I've being a parent and having a child who's neurotypical and healthy and, you know, happy most of the time, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't take those things for granted as much as I'm sure I did before I interacted with these families and really saw on a daily, on a daily basis, what their day is like. And so, you know, I, I I don't know where all this is going. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know for me, I know for them, they're going to college. And I hope that, you know, as things unfold with my, my degree and my career, you know, I, I hope I can be a part on the inside of that and, and, you know, be one of the people opening doors for them instead of making it you know, making it hard for them to get through. And I really think that they are going to, I really think when, not if, but when they get onto college campuses or get into their elementary schools or get not in, not in like down the hall in, but like in the classroom Mm -hmm. with their peers, they're going, they change, they challenge and they change everyone in their path who's open and who's willing to be challenged a little bit and change, you know, I think they, they change everyone for the better. And I, I just can't, I can't wait to see, you know, I can't wait to see where they go. And I can't wait to see the dynamics between that have unplayed between my daughter and this group. Cause she spent a lot of time with them, with me on the weekends or, you know, going to different social functions. Mm-hmm. Um, last night I took my daughter and her friend to this trampoline park and, and, she started screaming, mom, there's Graciela. And Graciela was there with her therapist. And, you know, I mean, we, so, but I, I, I can't wait to see these students who are, who are not neurotypical, they're neurodiverse or atypical, whatever you want to call it. And neurotypical students just, you know, all out on the playground together. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. One more quick little story. Um, and then if, if, if you have other questions, but this past January, it, you know, they're doing the, the Martin Luther King, all the little lessons at school and it's civil rights awareness, black history month, whatever. And so Chris, my husband had, he had helped Emerson study for her little quiz on Jackie Robinson and the civil rights movement and all this. 
And so I was driving her to school and I said, so I said, you know, what do you remember from studying with daddy last night? And so she tells me and, you know, the civil rights movement, they were fighting for, you know, schools to be desegregated and all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, how do you think that applies to Reese and, and his friends? And she said, well, I'm not really sure. And I said, well, if it's not lawful to segregate students based on the color of their skin, do you think it's right to segregate students based on their abilities or disabilities? And she said, no. And I said, well, where are the students with disabilities in your school? And she said, they're down the hall, but I think they should be in my classroom. (laughs) And at the time, Graciela had, they had worked with her family and her school and, and she really wanted to go into an inclusive classroom in her, in her public middle school. And she had just started doing that. This was back in January. And uh, she said, Mom, do you think the students in Graciela's class are going to make fun of her? And I said, well, you know, Emerson, unfortunately, that's a possibility. I said, but what do you think? What does that tell you about Graciela? And she said, I think it it tells me that she's very kind and brave and she has a really big heart. So. I'm going to try not to cry. No, I, cry. I hear I'm, you. I hear you. You know, uh, but you know, when you, you know, I'm grateful that my daughter gets to go to school. I'm grateful that she gets to get, you know, a good education and the, the academics curriculum that is prescribed for her. You know, I'm glad that she gets to go to Sunday school and, 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 you know, learn about God and Jesus. I'm glad, I'm so grateful that she has all these very positive influences around her. But that kind of exposure and perspective and that is priceless, you know, to watch my daughter take the letter board and and go up to go up to Reese and and want really bad to hold the letter board and communicate with Reese. Hmm. I mean, that is priceless. That is priceless. And so I when I see that dynamic playing out, I I maintain hope that this is something that I'm not seeing very often. I'm just getting little glimpses of it between my daughter and a group of students that she's around a lot. But but I hope, you know, like I said, 5, 10, 15 years from now, that the norm, that's just what you see, just as much as you see people walking around zoned out on their cell phones. Right. I was just <laughs> thinking there's, there's, there's <laughs> it's just going to be a different type of device that, that they get to communicate with and through as well. I was thinking about. I was thinking about that as you were talking about these boards and just taking it into the future as well. So, yeah, you know what? I'm just I'm I am captivated by these stories. And I I did find the GoFundMe. I've got that link. I did find Deej's documentary coming out. It's called it's at DeejMovie.com, D-E-E-J Movie.com. But we'll have all of those in the show notes here as well for people to take a look at. And um it's got me, it just, it just has me thinking, like I had told you before, when we first started chatting about doing this, you know, having this conversation was that I remember looking, poking around on Reddit and, you know, I get my funny little videos on there and I follow, you know, an autism thread on there as well. And I saw someone had said, look, I'm, I'm 20 years old. I see a ton of stuff out here for, you know, younger children, but nothing for people like me, like where are the things for, for me? So mm-hmm. it was just really interesting to, to kind of put that together. And the fact that I know Chris and we had a conversation and it led to this here too. And, you know, it really, it kind of opened up my eyes to like, you know, one of these days, Mikey's going to be old enough to, to consider what he wants to do with his future as well, you know, and we mm-hmm. have a lot of hope right now also, but we haven't, we haven't even begun to think about 
independent life skills and, and college and, and a GED or SAT or AP classes or anything, right? We haven't even mm-hmm. thought about any of that stuff. So this is very, very fascinating to me and it's super touching, you know, just, I, I had to sit here kind of quiet because I'm just thinking through some of the stuff here too. So, <laughs> you know, starting to get a little bit emotional, just thinking about, um, the breakthroughs that these families are experiencing. And I, we haven't had, we've had little breakthroughs as well. I mean, I remember when we've shared this, that, you know, just getting Mikey to sleep the first time, I mean, my wife and I sat outside his bedroom door and cried just happy that he was able mm-hmm. to sleep. I could not imagine just the emotion, like putting myself in the position of like, if Mikey, if, if he and I grew up around each other and it wasn't until he was 16 or 17 that we could really communicate, I'd be like, dude, we have so much to catch up on. Yeah. You know, we have so much to talk about. I wouldn't want to, st- I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would bug him all the time, <laughs> yeah. all the time. And just like, yeah. it would just be um, incredible. So I'm happy these yeah. families have this now, you know? Yeah. Well, and two, two things I, I want to make sure that I say so that the first is, I think that the most important thing is, you know, aside from like, don't ever give up because they're in there and you'll find it, it'll happen, but is presume competence. I mean, until proven otherwise, presume competence, presume that they are the most brilliant individuals in your circle of family and friends, because I'll tell you, I have never had to Google so many definitions of words than in the last two years, because, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're so intelligent. The other thing I would say is I know that I had mentioned the the majority of the group that I have worked with and encountered are non-speaking. However, a couple of them in this Atlanta community that I've met, I'm sure there's more in the in the larger group. They they speak all the time. You know, there's one individual that was here, he just moved back to up north and where his family's originally from, but he speaks all the time. He would talk to me all class long. He would say things like, Collins, what flavor of yogurt are you eating? And Collins, does your, does, does Emerson sleep in the bed with you and Chris? And, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. But as soon as he started using the letter board, he was very adamant with his parents in that he wanted them to go by what he was spelling on the letter board and not by what was coming out of his mouth. Interesting. And so what I, I mean, you know, I've learned all kinds of phrases because, you know, I'm learning on the streets here, not in any kind of academic training, but, but so he has what they would refer to as, as unreliable speech. And so I think, and, and his family will tell you, I mean, they were very, you know, kind of very hesitant to give the letter boards a try because, you know, they were having some success with him speaking with his mouth. But as soon as he got going on these letter boards, he's like, I can't control what my mouth does. And so, you know, they all have different motor profiles. I mean, that's another phrase I've learned recently. So that's interesting. Um, so let's, let me poke at that just a little bit. So even though he's, you know, saying, you know, what flavor yogurt are you eating? That's really not what's on his mind. Is that what you're saying? It's almost like, you know, it's, it's, it's a tick. It's out of, it's uncontrolled. It's beyond his control or part, he partly wants to say that. I mean, he, it's, he has, he does not care at all what kind of yogurt I'm eating. You know, I mean, here's one specific comes out, right? Yeah. Here's one specific example. So in, for one of the class days, they were having it later in the afternoon. I had a softball game afterwards. So I left the classroom and went and changed into my softball uniform and then came back into the classroom. So I came in and he immediately says, Collins, why are you wearing exercise clothing? 
And I said, well, I have a softball game. And so I go on with him for a couple minutes about my softball game. Well, I'm, you know, do you want to come to my softball game? You know, no, what position, you know, on and on and on. And so, you know, and it's hard. I mean, even for as much as I've been around him, it's hard. Like I'm thinking I'm carrying on a back and forth conversation. And when I asked him a question, you know, he does have a response that fits with the conversation. I mean, it's not out of left field, but I, that was a softball reference, by the way. Right. Right. No pun intended. (laughs) So I asked him, I, so I said, I said, are you, are you really interested? Like, do you really want to come to my softball game? Are you really interested in this? And so I said, answer your mom on the board or answer me on the board, you know? And so he types out to his mom or spells out whatever. No, I have no interest in softball or going to call in softball game. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, but it's just, it's, you know, but he's also the only one who for two years, as soon as I walked in the room, he's the only one who noticed if I got a quarter of an inch of haircut, you know, if I got a haircut and it was like, just so slight, he's like, I know, I know you got a haircut. So it's just like the, the detail and the, the little things that they observe and notice it's, it's unreal. The other thing I'll tell you about that same softball conversation, because I think it speaks to the true personality that's under all of that. Right. So Reese was in that same class and he asked me on the board, what position do you play? And I said, I play second and I play catcher. And he said, what is your batting average? And you know, his mom's laughing. She's like, Collins, Reese, she doesn't know what her batting is. I was like, actually, my <laughs> softball coach went to Georgia Tech. He's a statistician, and he does keep stats on our batting average. So I will email you my batting average by the end of the night. And he said, when you're catching, do you wear catcher's gear? And I said, no, it's just co-ed softball. Like, we're just out there having fun. So he says to me, now his dad is a dentist, right? So he says to me on the letter board. Oh, boy. When you get hit with a foul ball in the face, make sure you go see my dad. So like, you know, I mean, there's, you know, and then, and then uh, or, or another, I guess, quick restory when you were mentioning, you know, you and your wife sitting outside crying. And so I was doing one of the lessons with him and, um, when I was going to his house and he could just, so we were going down in the therapy room in the basement, they've, you know, and I couldn't. I couldn't figure out where the light switch was for the room that we were in. And I, you know, walking around everywhere. Finally, I got him on, you know, and then, um, the next week it dawned on me, okay, he has lived in this house his whole life. He knows where the light switch is. Why didn't I ask him where the light switch is? Mm. Or why didn't I say, Reese, go turn on the light. light. Yeah. So, so the next week I went over there and as soon as we went down in the, in the basement, I said, Reese, will you flip on the light for me? And he went right over to the light and turned it on. And I just looked at him and again, I'm like trying not to cry. And I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't ask you last week. Please forgive me. Cause it's a process. I mean, when mm-hmm. you, it's a process to unwind 20 years of what you have not been able to communicate with someone and to completely change everything, you know, to the way it should be. Um, and then there was a different session where, you know, I could just tell he was just, I could tell he didn't feel good. I mean, he was like laying on the couch with a blank covering his head and like every once in a while he, you know, peek his head out so he could answer on the board. So I stopped the lesson and I said, Reese, are you, are you feeling okay? Or would you rather, you know, 
would you rather just pick this back up next week? And he said, Collins, I have a horrible headache and I really would just like to, to rest this afternoon. I was like, we're done. Wow. Okay. You know, I'll turn off the light, get some rest. I'll see you next week. And I drove home and actually started crying in the car because that was a full circle moment between us because 20 years before when we were doing lessons with him and, you know, I was sitting there and I was like, I'm supposed to do this for an hour, but he looks yep. miserable, but it's not an hour yet. And I've got to finish all these little check marks for this, you know, this little lesson to say that we did it. And, you know, I mean, he could just say, I have a headache and mm -hmm. that's okay. And then I, you know, I mean, well, then you wouldn't have been the soft one that got fired. You would have just been attentive. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, you know, it's just, it's been quite, I mean, I, I described this group and, and, and what the movement that is happening with them. And, and I think with all, you know, the whole autism more, I mean, I feel like they are on the beginning of a tsunami current and I'm just very, you know, I feel like I kind of caught the wave <clears throat> like as it was getting going. Mm -hmm. And I'm just very, I'm very grateful that I'm swimming with and not against the current because they're, they're going somewhere and it's, it's, it's going to be good wherever it is. This is amazing. Like I said, I hadn't even, I haven't even thought this far ahead yet. And I hadn't even paired the two, you know, what, do, what do we do if our, what would we have done had Mikey been more severely autistic and, you know, we flash forward and he's 17, 18, 20, right? What would that, what would that feel like? You know, we're over here, we're over here complaining because he, you know, does raspberries on strangers necks. You know what I mean? Just does little Zerberts on them. Right. Mm -hmm. When I mean, at least, you know, at least he's out and about and interacting and things like this where, yeah, like you just said, you had a full circle moment where you weren't able to communicate 20 years ago and now are. So I love it. So I'm not sure how to end this. <laughs> Other than, I mean, <laughs> well, I could... I, here's, here's what I'll say. I think it's, it's probably shouldn't just be one conversation. No, I definitely think. not. And I think, you know, I love the idea of you being able to dialogue with them. You know, I know, of course, on an audio version of a dialogue, non-speaking individuals would be challenging, but we'll figure out a way around it. Yeah, um, for sure. And, I, I'd you know, love to, I, I'd love to just hear what, you know, what message are they trying, you know, what would they love to say if they could talk to, I mean, we don't have a gigantic audience right now, but there's a fair amount of people that you know, the minute we let the podcast out, they're listening to it. So I'm just curious, mm -hmm. what would, you know, what would Reese want, you know, to say, you know, or what would he want people to know? Or if he, you know what, if he could talk, maybe this is something we should, we, we could work on here too, is if he could tell, let me see how to phrase this. You know, he preferred, as we learned that he preferred books in audio form, right? So mm -hmm. he, could, he could listen and process very, very well there. It's like, if he could talk to other people, the process that way as well, what would he tell them? You know, what advice, cause he's going through or he's gone through stuff that they may have yet gone through or go through. Um, it would be very interesting to, and, and awesome to give him the platform to share that. Mm -hmm. Well, I tell you what, here's what I will, I will commit to doing. If you want to either audio record or email me some questions, and I don't know if your listening base has a way to, to you know, kind of like comment back to you or whatnot. But if you want to formulate a list of questions about whatever, and it could be geared toward the autistic individual or their parent or whomever, then I will, I will, um, get that to Reese and any of the others. And, you know, we can, I can convey their messages on their behalf and maybe part two of this. 
That would be awesome. I, I definitely, I mean, for, for better or for worse, I'm going to be pinging you every once in a while to find out how things are going. <laughs> so because uh, this is very, like I said, I'm very intrigued and interested. And I think, um, I think we can, I think we can help just again, just being a part of this community. I, I, you know, looking at the GoFundMe, I'm like for, for Recliff, I'm sure there are people that are listening that are willing to help. I'm definitely interested in helping and have some ideas around that too. So let's just, why don't we do this? Why don't we wrap it for today? We've been going for quite a while, about an hour and 40 minutes right now, which is great. So I'm thankful to everybody who's been uh, listening this whole time. I've been riveted. Typically you all know I'm yapping a lot, but I was, I was just riveted here as well. So I'm looking forward to the next time we talk as well and just seeing where these kids go. Um, it's very inspirational. So, all right. Thank you again for spending a Saturday afternoon with me. I appreciate it. And yeah, we'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Hey, it's Mike again. I don't I love that you took the time to listen to this podcast and subscribe to the show. We really are trying to gear the topics to what you like, as well as to share what we're up to. Now, the best way to let us know what's on your mind is to join us on our Facebook page. We're very active there. And if you message us, we will reply. I promise we may be half asleep in our bed. I may be boarding a flight. We might be at a birthday party or the park. It doesn't matter. We will reply. We just want to be in touch with you. Also, it'd be awesome if you could leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. The reason we ask for that is because it really helps us rank better when people search just out of the blue for autism, ADHD, Asperger's, high-functioning autism, SPD, ASD, you name it, right? It really helps us to get in front of more people. All the ways that you can reach us, because there are others, plus a walkthrough on how to actually rate the podcast can be found at findingmikey.com support. And your support is greatly appreciated. So as an added bonus, any reviews that are left on iTunes will be mentioned on our show. I hope you're okay with that. And any questions that we get on Facebook might also be read and responded to on an upcoming episode. So head on over to www.findingmikey.com forward slash support to find out more. Till our next episode, take care.